In our study through the Bible, we came last week to the book of Hosea. So I would ask you to grab your Bibles and turn back there. We will have the verses on the screen for you, but I encourage you not to ever let that become a crutch or an excuse. I encourage you to uh, dig into your Bible for yourself and learn where things are, learn how to navigate that. It'll pay dividends for you in the years to come. Well, last week we looked at the first three chapters of Hosea. I mentioned to you that, that that first section there really gives us an overview of the whole book that is to come. Chapters one through three give us an overview of the judgment of God and the hope that will follow his judgment. And so today now we come to the middle section of the book in chapters four through ten, which is now going to focus, it's moving the focus away from Hosea and his wife and all that we talked about there last week, and it's moving it now squarely on God's people, Israel, and talking also a little bit to Judah, the southern kingdom at that time. And so verses, uh, chapters 4 through 10, this middle section, focus on God's impending judgments. And I'm so thankful that that's not the end of the story because next week we'll look at the final section of Hosea, chapters 11 through 14, that close by following up God's impending judgments with God's promise of hope. And so um, I'm very glad that we get to wrap this little book up on a note like that. I've mentioned this before. I guess it's more prevalent in my world, maybe, um, than most, simply because I'm a pastor and I talk to people all the time and have people talk to me and um, share their heart. They share where they are in their life, in their walk with God, if they have one. And I I often hear, and I, I don't ever want to discourage someone from being honest and just being able to pour out their heart if they're frustrated with life or God or whatever. You know, I was saying to someone just the other night, you read some of David's Psalms and it's like, whoo, I don't know if I'd have said that to God. So there are times for all of us when God doesn't make sense and we feel confused by what he's doing or allowing and we want to voice that to him, to someone. Often those frustrations come to me, which is fine. I'm happy to try and help with that. But along with that, over the years, I've noticed this pattern that um, God's judgment and justice in the Bible are, are so often met with protest by people, even by saved people, even by people in the church. They get very upset about God's justice and judgment that we see dispensed in different places in the Bible. They immediately want to label it as unfair. And people are quick to rush to to that conclusion. The fact is, uh, none of us likes to be taken advantage of. None of us do. Uh, When something comes our way, whether you know, whether it's something minor or whether it's something life-changing. But when, when we are wronged in some way, there's a sense of justice that springs up in us instantly. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's something small and completely insignificant in the realm of life. Like you've been standing in line at the DMV for 45 minutes and you've moved one square on the tile floor, and you see someone cut in line up there, what happens immediately in your heart? There's this sense of injustice. Okay, never mind if some horrible crime is committed against you or someone you love. There's a sense of injustice that rises up in us. And I want to say to you, that's right. God put that in us as a compass as a reminder that he has put laws of right and wrong in place. And again, whether it's something big or small, when we sense that, we are, in essence, being reminded of how God created things to be. 
that would not have evolved from a swamp in the middle of the universe. God put that immovable understanding of right and wrong in us. So that sense of injustice that comes up in us when, when we've been wronged is perfectly uh, good to be there. However, it, it's very important how we respond to it and how we proceed from that point. We have to be careful with that. How ironic, though, that the same people who cry foul when God dispenses justice and judgment in his word are the same people who cry foul when they've been wronged and justice isn't served on the one who has wronged them. Can I just tell you, um, you can't have it both ways. We can't pick and choose when those laws are in effect. We can't pick and choose when we face God's judgment or when we're allowed to skip out on it. So man has put certain rules and laws in place, and God has his rules and laws in place, but there's something that distinguishes God's justice very clearly from man's justice. Man's judgments and man's justice are are often based on um, weak and unclear and even faulty rules. And so there's always the possibility that even when a right judgment has been passed down by man, that you can still find problems with it because it hasn't been properly thought through. It hasn't been properly administered. But here's the thing that I want you to, to, to take in as we begin these chapters today. God's justice and judgments are always based on the unchanging principles of his word. And it's important that we come into these chapters today with that in mind. So, you see, while our court systems in this world um, often administer improper justice, we could even say unfair justice, it happens. There are people sitting in prison right now who are innocent. The justice that was handed down to them possibly had the best of intentions, but it was wrong. It was based on faulty information or lies or whatever the case may be. So while our court systems are often skewed in their justice, God's court system always operates on the clearly defined, unchanging laws of God. And when his judgment is handed down, there is not one guilty person who can honestly say that they didn't deserve that judgment. In other words, God never judges anyone without first making them abundantly aware of the rules and the consequences. Those rules are not followed. And without God first giving them ample warnings and opportunities to turn around and make things right before judgment falls. So, while chapters 4 through 10 of Hosea may seem to the casual reader like the rampage of an unhinged, unpredictable, angry God, nothing could be further from the truth. These chapters actually contain, you could say, a court transcript of legal proceedings by God that have been followed to the letter of the law, of justice that has been dispensed in perfectly appropriate proportions to the crimes that have been committed. And it's all dispensed by a God, by a judge, who all the while is wishing he didn't have to do this. A God who, if you will, under the the judge's black robe, His heart is breaking as he thinks, I don't want to dispense this judgment. I wish they would have listened to me. I don't want to do this. 
throughout the entire Old Testament that we've studied through up to this point, God has repeatedly made his laws clear. He has said, I created all this. All of this, everything that you see, everything is is under my domain. I am the creator. I am the king. I am the ruler of all of this. And every bit of it is governed by the laws, the rules, the principle, the principles that, that I put in place. Again, it's, it's vitally important that we understand that. That we, although we often look at this as our world, we must understand, I was sharing with someone last Sunday after the service, I uh, can't remember who this was, it might have been the old preacher J. Vernon McGee. But he was talking about how people get so upset at God that God's not governing the way they think he should. And, and he, he summed it all up like this. He said, he had this weird squeaky voice, uh, and he said, um, this is God's universe, and he does things his way. You may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. <laughs> I could take you to the spot on the road where I was in the car when I heard that on the radio 30 years ago. <laughs> Never forgotten that. Yeah, that's pretty much it. That, that pretty much sums it up. God's made it clear from Genesis, this is all mine. All of this is my domain. I am king and lord and master and ruler and judge over all of it. All of it. And God has also made it clear, if you choose to live by my laws, these are the blessings that will come your way. If, however, you choose to violate my laws, these are the consequences that will come your way. Folks, it's that simple and that difficult. Remember in the garden, again, people think God is so restrictive that his rules are so unfair What did God say to Adam and Eve? Look at all I've created for you. Take this in. He said, you are free to eat from every tree in the garden except for one. You see the the ratio there? God's not restrictive. He said, I've given you all of this. You're free to eat of any and all the trees you want to, all the fruit you want to, all the Broccoli and cauliflower and whatever that you want to. I don't think Brussels sprouts were ever intended to be eaten by humans, but maybe. I know Joe's a man who doesn't like his vegetables, and I, uh, I'm pretty sure, you know, when the first person reached for the Brussels sprout and went like this, God was going, oh, no, no, oh, mm. I think it was intended for donkeys, and that's... Maybe about it. But God said, look, I've created all this beauty for you. You have freedom to roam, to come and go, to do as you please, all within this huge boundary. Just ask one thing. Don't go there. Don't eat of that one tree. And what did they do? They went right there. And they did exactly what God asked them not to do. You and I are struggling with the same thing today. Same thing. But God promised, if you choose to live by my principles, you will be blessed in a multitude of ways. If you choose to violate my principles, there will be judgment. There will be consequences. And again, I have to ask, why do people get upset about that? Those same people um, have no problem living day by day in accordance with the physical laws that govern our universe. They don't get angry that there are physical rules in place that bring consequences when they're violated. If you kick a brick wall barefoot as hard as you can, 
There, there are physical laws in place that will snap the bones in your toes. Whether you believe in that law or not, you will be subject to those physical laws, and you will experience the pain. If you walk up to the top of a 50-story building, believing with all your heart that you can step off the ledge and float peacefully to the sidewalk below, you are going to very quickly realize that you have violated the laws of gravity and you are going to pay serious consequences. Nobody has problems with that. I don't ever have anybody come to me and go, Pastor Phil, I'm so furious about the law of gravity. It's never happened. But I do have people who shake their fist at God and in essence say, I am so furious at God's laws. In the same way that God has put physical laws in place that we all understand and we all live by, God has also put spiritual and moral laws in place, which whether we like it or not, and whether we believe it or not, when violated, those spiritual laws will bring the resulting consequences and pain. It's also important to know that God is not, nor does he ever bring baseless charges against anyone. We sometimes feel that way. God, what have I done? Why would you allow this into my life? God has never dispensed unfair judgment on anyone. When Sodom and Gomorrah were getting ready to be destroyed because of their unspeakable sin, and their repeated refusal to turn to God. Did not Abraham plead with God and say, God, would you spare them? If I can find 50 righteous people in the city, would you spare them? And we remember that negotiation that took place where God was willing to, you know, to take that number all the way down, basically say, look, if you just find a handful of people, I'll spare the city. God doesn't want to bring judgment, and yet... When God did bring judgment, Abraham was able to say, will not the judge of all the earth do right? And the answer is yes, he will. God never dispenses unfair judgment. He operates strictly within the very laws he has created. And while most people you know, bristle and push back against laws, simply because we don't like being told what to do, I don't like being told what speed to drive. I don't like being told I can't do this and can't do that. We'd probably agree that there are certain laws that provide safety and protection for us and for our family. Those laws are for our benefit. I want you to listen to the viewpoint that Psalm 19 gives about God's laws. This is so foreign to us. Now, I'm only going to read the first half, and then just before we finish today, I'll come back. I promise I'll, I'll fill in the rest of these verses. But I just wanted you to see the first half of each of these statements because they're so, they sound like another language almost. If I were to walk up to people on the street and just do a random interview with random people and, and say to them, complete this sentence, the law of the Lord is you would hear things like restrictive, burdensome, old-fashioned, outdated, unnecessary. You would hear people say that, because that's how we think of laws so often. I want you to listen to this. This is, in fact, the, the case, the truth. The law of the Lord is perfect. We don't think of laws that way. None of you. None of you has ever been given a speeding ticket or been arrested for something, and while that judgment is being dispensed, none of you has ever said, this law is perfect. Because you want to fight it. The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. You don't have to wonder when he gives testimony whether he's got it accurate or he's telling the truth. The statutes of the Lord 
are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous all together. So as we step into this middle section of Hosea today, and we're only going to have time to do just a brief overview, what we're actually doing is we're stepping into a courtroom scene, if you can picture that, where a trial is already underway. We're picking up in the middle of the hearings. And so we've missed a bunch that has gone on, but the fact is there are years of history that have led up to this trial. And without going back and examining all that evidence, it would be unfair for us to draw our own conclusions on the judgments being handed down. In these chapters, God is, in essence, making his closing arguments to his people, the people who have been charged with multiple, repeated, willful violations of God's law, and the verdict will soon follow. Now, as I mentioned last week, this book of Hosea was written in a very unusual pattern. If you've ever sat down with a a nice cup of tea on a nice rainy morning and said, I'm going to read the book of Hosea today. Uh, My guess is by the time you get to the end of chapter 14, your head's going to be spinning. It's not going to make a lot of sense just reading it from start to finish. Just because of the way that it's written, it's somewhat in a poetic fashion, and you know how these poets can be, right? (laughs) I remember studying about them in school. I remember studying the English poets and thinking, oh, this guy should have been a landscaper or something. (laughs) Not a poet, because it's terrible. But poets, like artists... Where's Patricia? Yes. Uh, they have a license, you know, to, to be creative and break the rules and do things their own way. Hosea is written in a really unusual um, style. As you read through this, the, the narrative swings wildly from one end of the pendulum to the other, just from verse to verse. We're taken from the beauty of God's undying love and unfailing goodness for his people in one verse to um, the the blatant, sickening evil uh, uh, that the people have repaid God with in the next verse. And it's like this throughout the whole book. It swings back and forth, back and forth. And I think it's written in this style, perhaps, as I alluded to last week, to to jolt us, to jar us, to... uh, Help us see and feel the vastness of the expanse between God's holiness and man's sin. Between God's faithfulness and man's rebellion. And when you read these verses like that in this pattern, from one to the other, you you can't help but get this awareness of the contrast between man and God. Now, as I said, there's far too much in these chapters for us to read through it all today. So in order to get the big picture of this middle section of Hosea, I've gone through and I've put together the main points from these two extremes that I just described. So first, I want to give you an overview of the legal charges that God is bringing against his people. And remember, as we read this, God never unjustly charges anyone. So it's important for us to be clear on exactly what his people have done, the the laws that they have violated in order for us to understand the judgments that are going to come. He begins in Hosea 4.1. And he says, Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel. For the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. The word charge there in that verse, if you want to make a note, is the Hebrew word lawsuit. So this is the word they would use in a a court of law, saying, I'm going to sue you. I'm bringing a lawsuit against you. God is making his case very clear in this book so that everyone knows that the judgments that are about to be handed down are not baseless or erratic, They are the direct result 
the direct consequences of the actions of the people. Now, I want to, um, I've listed a bunch of these, but I haven't even listed them all for time's sake and for just our ability to absorb all of this. But I just want to read for you some samples, verse after verse after verse, <clears throat> so that we can see the charges that are being brought and the reasons for it. Hosea 4.1, there is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. And we're gonna, I'm going to come back to that in just a little while because that's one of the keys. There's no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. Chapter 4, verse 2a, Israel is full of swearing, lying, killing, stealing, and adultery. Verse 2b, they show no restraint. Verse 2c, they commit bloodshed upon bloodshed. Verse 4, they contend with the priest. In other words, you've got people who hear the word of the Lord being spoken and go, ah, that's a bunch of rubbish. We don't need to hear that. Keep it for yourself, old man. They contend with the priest. Verse 6, they have rejected knowledge and forgotten the law of God. Verse 8, they set their heart on iniquity. Verse 10, they have stopped obeying the Lord. Verse 11, their hearts are enslaved by harlotry and wine. Verse 12, my people, God says, my people ask counsel from their wooden idols and their staff informs them. In other words, it's a picture of all the superstitious stuff like a, a divining rod. Oh, great, powerful staff. What decision should I make in this matter? God's saying, are you kidding me? These people are turning to idols and divining rods rather than turning to me. Verse 13a, they worship idols on the mountaintops, on the hills, and under the trees. Verse 13b, their daughters commit harlotry and their brides commit adultery. Verse 14, the men go off with harlots and offer sacrifices with them. Verse 17, they are joined to idols. Verse 18, their rulers dearly love dishonor. Chapter 5, verse 2, there is widespread violence. They are involved in slaughter. Verse 4, they do not direct their deeds toward turning to God. I know you can't write all this down. I'm sorry, I'll be glad to send you a copy of this later. I should have mentioned that. I got to move too quickly through these. Uh, chapter 5, verse 7, they have fathered pagan children. Verse 11, they willingly walk by human precepts or principles. Verse 13, they turned to Assyria and to their gods. Chapter 6, verse 7, they have transgressed the covenant. Verses 8 and 9, they are a city of evildoers defiled with blood. Chapter 7, verse 1, they have committed fraud. Verse 7a, they have devoured their judges. 7b, no one calls upon me, God says. Verse 11, they have made alliances with Egypt and Assyria. Verse 14, they do not cry out to me from their heart. Chapter 8, verse 1, they have rebelled against my law. Verse 3, they have rejected what is good. Verse 4, they set up kings, but not by me. They made princes, but I did not acknowledge them. On and on and on we could go with these charges. Um, what I was kind of hoping by giving you that many is that you would be sitting here going, okay, Phil, we get it. Enough. The reason I wanted you to feel a bit of frustration and annoyance with like, okay, I understand, I get it, you don't have to keep reading, is because I wanted us to feel a little bit of what God felt as his people committed 
page after page after page of violations against him. Imagine the heartbreak of God. As parents, does it not wound us to some extent when we've loved our children and given ourselves to them and poured our love and time into them and they disobey us in one thing? Does it not wound your heart? And, you, you, you know, as parents used to say, I do and do and do for you kids, and this is the thanks I get. You know, somewhere I think parents got together and they learned all those same lines. Don't make me come back there, if you ever heard that in the car. That pain that you and I feel as parents, when we've invested so much into our kids, and they disobey us, multiply that times a trillion, trillion. Maybe we're starting to catch a little glimpse of the pain that God feels when he looks at his people who he has given everything for. And we continually find ourselves on a list of charges much like this. After skimming just this brief list of charges, could anyone honestly say that God's impending judgment is unfair? (laughs) If we were in a courtroom and we heard these and all the other charges being read, would we not go, okay, got it, he's guilty, let's end this, let's just do whatever you need to do. But would we not say, you know... I mean, he kind of deserved it. Look at the list of charges. So we move now quickly into, from, from God's charges against his people to the judgments that are about to follow, God's impending judgments. Again, all of this is woven together through these chapters. So we go back to chapter 4, verse 3 now. God is, is telling them as he goes along, Because you violated my laws, this is what is going to happen. Therefore, the land will mourn, and everyone who dwells there will waste away with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Even the fish of the sea will be taken away. Do we understand what sin does? In Genesis 3, God said... Adam and Eve, you've sinned, but you're not the only ones who are going to suffer. The whole earth is going to suffer. Thorns and thistles and sweat and blood. and all, The whole thing is ruined now. All of it. And every time I have to go pull weeds in the stinking garden, I'm just like, thanks a lot, guys. Thank you for this. The whole thing is cursed. The law of entropy is, is very Uh, active and visible, it's all crumbling downhill as time goes on. That's what sin has done. Verse 7, I will change their glory into shame. Verse 10, they shall eat, but not be satisfied. Wow. Verse 16, the Lord will let them forage like a lamb in open country. You know, if there's one place a lamb should never be, it's in the open country. Because he's going to get picked off real soon. He needs to be with the shepherd in the fold. Verse 19, they shall be ashamed. Chapter 5, verse 2, I will rebuke them all. Verse 5, they will stumble in their iniquity. Verse 9, Ephraim This is a word often used to describe Israel. You can research this on your own. Ephraim was um, kind of a half-tribe, one of the sons of um, Joseph, but but they had become so large that often the name Ephraim was just used as a term for all of Israel. Ephraim will become desolate. Verse 11, they will be oppressed and broken in judgment. Verse 13, Assyria cannot cure you nor heal you of your wound. This was spoken in direct link to the fact that the Bible says when they were hurting, they didn't turn to God, they turned to Egypt and to Assyria for help. 
Verse 14, I will carry you off and no one shall rescue you. That was fulfilled in um, uh, 722 BC and 701 BC when Assyria and Babylon came in and wiped them out. Verse 13, woe to them, destruction to them. Verse 16, their princes will fall by the sword. Chapter 8, verse 3, the enemy will pursue you. Chapter 6, the calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. They were worshiping golden calves. Verse 7, they will reap the whirlwind. It's a famous verse there. You sow the wind, you'll reap the whirlwind. Why? Because the law of, of the harvest, sowing and reaping, says you always reap more than you sow. Ask any farmer. Scatter a handful of seed, you get this massive crop that comes up that yields exponentially more than the number of seeds he planted. Same thing is true when we plant good as it is when we plant evil. Verse 8, Israel is swallowed up. Chapter 9, verse 2, the threshing floor and the wine press shall not feed them. In other words, all your efforts to sustain yourself are going to be useless. Verse 3, they shall not dwell in the Lord's land, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt and shall eat unclean things in Assyria. Verse 6, Egypt shall gather them up, Memphis shall bury them, briars will possess their valuables of silver, thorns will be in their tents. Verse 7, the days of punishment have come. Again, we could go on and on and on with this. I think that's more than enough. God makes it clear, makes it clear that he doesn't want to bring any of this judgment. Here's what God wants instead. Back in Hosea chapter 5, verse 15, it says this, I will return to my place, God says, till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. See, this is the purpose of God's judgments. It's to wake us up like that spanking on the rear end I got, I think, once when I was a kid, (laughs) that wakes you up and you go, ouch, that hurt a lot, so let me learn a lesson from that. I don't want to go that way again. God's judgments are sent out to his wayward people not to harm them, but in the hopes that they will wake up and come back. God longs to hear his people say what is written in chapter 6, verse 1, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. Chapter 10, verse 12 says, Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, till he comes and rains righteousness on you. What an incredible promise that is. Break up your fallow ground. You know what? Your heart has grown hard. Allow God's word to break up the soil of your heart. Make it soft so that that seed can take root there and grow and bear fruit. That's what God wants. As I close, may... Look, and I'll just tell you, I'm not, I'm not a professional preacher. I'm not a professional sermon preparer or anything like that. I really, really struggled with how to cover all of these chapters and um, do it in a way where we don't spend four weeks looking at all of this. And you guys are like, I'm not coming back next Sunday unless you preach on something good. <laughs> it's just, this is a lot. It's a lot to take in. But what I've tried to do this morning is just to to give us a picture of both sides of this so that if you are in a place in life right now where you are feeling God's chastisement, you're feeling his hand heavy upon you, rather than resenting God 
Rather than trying to find ways to work around that, to get out of it, that you would leave here today with a, a fresh awareness that whatever God has seen fit to bring into your life, it is for your good. He is your father. He's not judging you unjustly. I promise you, if you feel that God is being unfair, if you will search him, seek him long enough, your eyes will open to the truth and you will go, oh, of course, I didn't even see that. I didn't even realize what I was doing. God is always right in his judgments. If you're there today, and I talked with someone last week, not even from LifePoint, someone else who uh, I try to help from time to time, who is right here, is right here, struggling with feeling that God is unjust. Like I said, none of us like that feeling. I, I felt it Friday afternoon, last thing, Friday afternoon, like 5.15, I got a phone call, not from anybody here, nothing to do with LifePoint, but this woman was just, um, she was just hostile on the phone towards me. And uh, what she said was, she, it was just wrong. It was flat out wrong what she was doing. And she, you know, this incident that we're dealing with, she basically said, um, we, have, uh, we have deemed that we will take no responsibility for this. And I said to her, what you're doing is wrong. What you're doing is wrong. And I pointed her to the facts. She said, regardless, that's the stand we're taking. And you know, it rose up in me again, that sense of this is not right. And it angered me. We all feel that in different moments in life. We're all, we've all been done wrong. I remember my friend of many years who I did business with. I remember the day I found out that he had stolen thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars from my business. It took me two weeks to even be able to tell Sandy. I was so disturbed by it. Like, are you kidding me? We're all done wrong in this world from time to time. And we feel that. We want to fight that. But listen to me. Whatever God has brought into your life. He is doing what is right. His judgments are right and pure and true. Don't fight him. Allow whatever he's brought into your life to put you on your knees to say, God, speak to me, break me, do whatever you need to. I can tell you, I, I think I mentioned to you in January, after I finished preaching here, and less than an hour later, I was in an ambulance being raced to the hospital, and they were working on me, and the alarms were going off in the ambulance, and I looked up and I saw the, the whatever you call it, just the look of sheer urgency and concern on the person's face who was working on me. And I knew, well, this could be it. You know what I did in that moment? I said, Lord... You really need to speak to me about something, don't you? I'm here. Talk to me. What do you need to tell me? God used that experience to humble me, man, to bring me down a bunch of pegs. You see, I could have gotten angry. How dare you? I was literally just preaching a sermon half an hour ago. I'm your man. You called me to this. Why would you let this happen? No, uh-uh, no. God's judgments are always right. Always right. You see, I, I want to remind you quickly, these people here in Israel, they had all the outward appearance of religion. They were gathering for worship. They were singing the songs. They were bringing their offerings. They were observing all the holy days. But God wasn't in their heart or their thoughts at all. 
Chapter 8, verse 14 says, For Israel has forgotten his maker and has built temples. Wait, I'm sorry, what? That's a misprint, right? Surely it should read, For Israel has forgotten God, so they stopped building temples. Nope. That's not the way it works. And it's still true today. There are churches everywhere who are booming. And God is nowhere to be found in their midst. These people forgot God. And they kept on building temples. They were expanding. Woo, it was impressive to see. They must be doing something right. Look at that growth. God said, I am nowhere in their worship. God had already made it clear what he wanted most of all from them and what he wants from us. Hosea 6.6, 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. You see, that's what was missing with Israel. I'll go back to Hosea 4.1 quickly that we started with. He said, there's no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. And that was exactly what led to their downfall. Hosea 4.6 says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. This knowledge is not a head knowledge. It's not a book knowledge. It's not going to school and getting a degree. It's not that. This word knowledge is the word for intimacy. It's, it's a, a husband and wife knowing each other like no one else knows them. This is how we are supposed to be with God. We can go through all the religious stuff. But are we, do we know God more intimately now than we did a year ago? Paul, late into his ministry, wrote, I don't have a slide for this, it just came to mind, Philippians 3.10, of all the people you think would never need to say this, Paul said, I want to know Christ. And you're like, what? You know it better than probably anybody. Paul says, no, no, it's, it's never enough. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to be part of all of that. And that should be true of us. Jesus prayed this for us in John 17, 3. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Do you know what would revolutionize the anemic dying church in America? It's to stop focusing on all the external measurements of success and start praying, God, come and transform us anew on the inside. It's for the church to humble themselves and get on their knees before God and say, Lord, we lift you up above everything else. We give you first place in our lives. And to be done with all the external show of church. Is that where we are? Is that what you desire? I told you I'd come back and finish that psalm. I'm not going to do it. I'll let you do it on your own. I need to close. Where are you in this this morning? Where are you in your knowing of God, your intimacy with him do you trust that his judgments are right, that his laws are perfect? And what he brings into your life is exactly what you need. Would you be willing, if you've been fighting that today, would you be willing just to start by taking one step and saying, God, I, I relinquish my right to be right? Whatever you need to show me, whatever you need to do in me, please do it. Because I want you to come again and reign righteousness in my life. Oh, I pray that this sweet church family would be that kind of church. That we would say, I don't care if we meet in a 40-year-old building that could use a lot of improvement. All this is going to burn one day. This means nothing. 
A pastor years ago was giving me a tour of their new building and showed me with great joy the $500,000 foyer with a huge chandelier, and I wanted to weep. This? This is what you're proud of? You see, we've got it so backwards today. We measure the success of a church or the success of a a Christian life by the complete wrong benchmarks. Oh, I pray that God would bring us to the point where we're willing to receive his judgments and his justice in our life and say, God, whatever you need to do, I want you to change me on the inside and I want you to be exalted in my life above everything else. Would you make that your prayer today? Let's pray. Father, um, you've told us not to despise the chastening of the Lord, but to accept it and know that God is bringing what needs to be brought into our lives. That his, his laws are always perfect. His judgments are always pure and right altogether. Lord, I know where some of these folks here today are in their walk and in their life because They've shared it with me. Um, Others, I don't. But Lord, for all of us, wherever we are, would would you burn into us today a fresh desire, hunger, passion for you to come in and do your work inside of us, change us, into the image of Christ, however painful that may be, whatever that may take, so that we can truly be called your people. And we can live our lives that that would bring you glory instead of shame and heartache. Thank you for your patience and love in our lives, Lord, as we try to understand all of this and figure it all out together as a church. Thank you for being patient with us. Lord, lead us from from this moment on into deeper and deeper knowledge and intimacy of you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. of my heart.